Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10 this morning. We left off on our study last time at verse 36 of chapter 9. There are two more verses that we did not read last time, which really apply to what we will be looking at today in chapter 10. So I'll be actually beginning this morning's readings from chapter 9, verse 37 where Matthew tells us, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's oftentimes in the Scriptures something that the writers of the Gospel accounts, as well as Paul and, and the other New Testament writers, refer to the harvest of souls. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. They were an agricultural society, so they were familiar with the process of harvesting. It required laborers. People would be hired by the owners of the property, and large numbers of people would come to work in the fields until the harvest was complete. Jesus is saying there's a harvest that's coming and it needs workers in order to complete the process. Now he's talking in that day about a harvest of the Jewish people specifically. And we'll see that as we move forward in this context that Jesus has come in this time, in this place, ministering to this people, the Jews. In fact, he will say later that his ministry was specifically to the Jews. I have come for the sheep of Israel. And that was his purpose in sending out people into the harvest to pronounce the fact that the kingdom was at hand. And the reference to the kingdom being at hand from both Jesus' perspective and also John the Baptist's perspective is that the promise of the Messiah that was made in the Old Testament was indeed fulfilled. In John's case, it was about to be fulfilled and he was preparing the way. In Jesus' case, it had been fulfilled because he is the Messiah. He's already demonstrated his power in various realms of experience to prove that he was indeed the one that God had promised to come, according to Isaiah chapter 35, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to do all of those things, expressing the power of God through him who was to come and sit on David's throne. They expected their Messiah to become their king. In Jesus' day, that meant to almost all of them that the Roman rule was about to come to an end because Jesus, as the Messiah, was about to fulfill that promise of the Old Testament Scriptures, which they believed was a complete fulfillment, including the deliverance from the power of Rome, and that this Messiah who was to come would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and reign over the people of Israel. That was their expectation. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill all of that which God had promised to His people. That's why He began His ministry to the Jews only. Now, that does not mean that He's excluding Gentiles. Thankfully, that 
would be mean if it were so that you and I, who are most of us here Gentiles, would not have been able to participate in the great blessings that God included and intended for all mankind. But in this context, Jesus is going to be sending out his disciples, as we will see in chapter 10, to the lost sheep of Israel, and only them. In fact, remember in verse 36 of chapter 9, he spoke of that very fact. He said, when he saw the multitudes, all Jews, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And we may remember in some of your Old Testament readings, I hope you do, or that you're familiar with the readings of, for instance, Ezekiel that talked about the fact that the problem with the nation of Israel is that they were sheep that had no shepherd. The shepherds that were over the people were in it for themselves. They were trying to overlord the people and take advantage of the poor and the common people of that day. Ezekiel spoke very, very against all of what the shepherds in his day were doing. And there were other places also in Isaiah and Jeremiah that spoke of the same things. Here, Jesus is saying, this poor people that are gathered all around, multitudes of Jews, were without a shepherd. They needed a shepherd. Sheep can't do things very well on their own. They're not a very bright animal. And I'm convinced that that's one of the major reasons why the Lord chose sheep as an illustration of you and me and all of who would believe in Him because we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's what Isaiah 53 says. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each one gone our own way. If a sheep does not have a shepherd to lead him, that sheep is going to go wandering off and not know why or where he's going. He's just going to continue moving around completely unaware of his surroundings or hers. And it's dangerous. So they need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to guide them to still waters. Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm that expresses that very fact. David, the king, who was a shepherd in his early days, knew the importance of a shepherd guiding the sheep. And when he wrote Psalm 23, it was especially true to him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me beside still waters and leads me in green pastures. Those are the things that the shepherd is responsible to do. And Jesus is here saying, these poor sheep don't have a shepherd that's capable or willing to do those things which the sheep need in order to survive. So he had great compassion on his sheep. And so in recognizing that fact, he wants his disciples also to recognize the fact that they need to be involved in that shepherding process. And so here in chapter 10, he's going to begin the process of making them aware of the need and also convincing them that they can do the job. And he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 10, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He gave them the power. He had just been manifesting that power in chapters 8 and 9, and now he's revealing that these men that he is selecting are going in that same power to reach out to the lost sheep of Israel. 
This is a remarkable thing. This is before the Holy Spirit has come down and baptized the church, as we find in the book of Acts. It's more like the time during the Old Testament dispensation or age where the Holy Spirit would fall selectively on individuals to do certain tasks. That's how the Lord moved in the Old Testament, pouring out His Spirit upon an Old Testament saint to do a specific task that was appointed to that. Whether it was a prophet or whether it was a king or whether it was a priest, the Holy Spirit came down upon that individual. But the Holy Spirit did not come down on everybody that named the name of God as their Lord. That did not happen until the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection. He's talking to his disciples, appointing his disciples to a task, and this is before he goes to the cross. So we must realize that he is giving them power, exousia, that's the Greek word, authority to do these things. They did not have it before he gave it to them. So it's important for us to realize this power, this exousia that he is providing for them to utilize in the ministry that he's calling them to do is a very important aspect of what is happening in this passage. Without that power, they could go into the villages and be completely wasting their time. And so I submit to you that now we, as believers in Jesus Christ, need to go in the same power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But we should never assume that we are to go without His leading us to do so. That's a very important concept of who we are in Christ and what we are to do when we are trying to serve the Lord. We need to be led by the Spirit of God. Because the other option is we're being led by the flesh. And one of the things that I've observed over my many, many years as a Christian is that there have been lots of people who have been moving in the arm of the flesh and calling it the Spirit of God. Oh, there's truth. There's wonderful ministry going on as the Spirit leads by the Spirit being done for the glory of God. And I praise the Lord for that. But I'm reminded always, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And the church for too long has depended on man's intellect, man's ability, man's own power and strength and strategies and methods and, and all kinds of things that people come up with and say, this is a good idea, let's go with it. Why do they do so? Especially... We should question those things if it is not by the Spirit of God. So we need discernment. Is this truly from God or is this our own flesh speaking? And that's the things that we need to remember as we go forward. Now here, Jesus is giving them the power. It is obvious this is the message that Jesus is going to present to them and they then will present that same message to the lost sheep of Israel. So he's calling them disciples, 12 of them, he tells us, to do these wonderful miracles and to proclaim the wonderful news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in verse 2, he names them. It says, now the names of the 12, not just disciples now, but listen, he says, the names of the 12 apostles. The difference is, a disciple, by definition, is a learner. An apostle is, by definition, a sent one. He's sending them out. So he names them 
12 apostles. And he tells them that they are going to go out in the power that he has been manifesting to do great things on behalf of the Lord. Now, Matthew is not the only one who speaks of these 12 individuals. Luke also gives us a list of 12 individuals who were chosen by the Lord. Mark gives us as well that list of 12 apostles. And Luke again a second time in the book of Acts. Those are the three other places where the 12 apostles are mentioned. Well, actually in the book of Acts, there's only 11 mentioned because it's after the resurrection and it's after Judas is no longer with them. But here he names them. And verse 2, listen to the names carefully. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, there are some differences in the texts that you all may have before you. For instance, where in my version says Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, it may just mention the name Thaddeus in your translation. That's okay, because that's really what his name was, Thaddeus. Labias was also, apparently, according to some of the older manuscripts, his name. He was known by both names. But, just to throw a little bit of a curve at everybody, the other two gospel writers don't refer to him as Thaddeus, but rather Judas. Well, perhaps the reason for the fact that Matthew chooses to name him by his Aramaic name, Thaddeus, is it may be that Thaddeus or Judas didn't like, like the association with the name Judas, perhaps, because it was Judas Iscariot, the other Judas, that betrayed the Lord Jesus. So he's known as Thaddeus here, referred to as Judas in the other gospel accounts. Also, we have Bartholomew, who may have been Nathaniel. Remember in the early part of the gospel record where Jesus was in Judea during John's ministry, and he was baptized by John, and he went out into the wilderness. And he came back and began to gather to himself certain disciples. Well, Nathaniel was mentioned there as one of those who were approached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very well a possibility that that Nathaniel is also known as uh, this man Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, we all know them to be Thomas and Matthew, except that Matthew is also known as Levi. He refers to himself as Matthew rather than Levi, but he also identifies himself here as a tax collector. So he's making no excuse for his previous occupation. In fact, it's interesting because in this list, he also gives us the name in verse 4, Simon the Canaanite. But in some of your translations, it's the zealot, and it's also the zealot in Luke and Mark's gospel as well. A zealot in that day was a very, very zealous individual who hated Rome. Many of the zealots were arrested and crucified because they tried to assassinate. They tried to disrupt the Roman government as much as they were able to do so. This man, Simon, became a believer in Jesus Christ. And think about it. Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, was working for Rome. 
And what do you think these two might have thought about each other when they first met? I'm convinced that Jesus must have stood right between the two of them and said, you both are my disciples. Get along. You know, that's not so easy, is it? When you've got this mindset, the one that maybe Simon had was, that tax collector is going to be part of this group? Can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? Was he thinking, I don't know about this. This doesn't sound right. Matthew might have been saying the same thing. I don't know about that guy. He's likely to kill me in the night. Whatever. They were together disciples of Jesus Christ. And they had to lay aside their differences in order to become His friends. His chosen ones. His sent out ones. Think about it. That's powerful. That's awesome power. The Lord can change our lives to make us so that we can be together in the same house and not be at each other's throats. That's the beauty of the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. We may come from different areas, different walks of life, but we can come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord and lay aside our worldly differences for the sake of the gospel. And that's what they did. That's what they had to do, and they were successful in doing so. So these are the lists of the twelve men, ending with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out. And he commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to just the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Samaritans were mixed breed, half Jew, half Gentile. There were Gentiles living in those eastern cities on the eastern shore of the Galilee, the the, the, uh, ten uh, cities that were Hellenistic primarily and filled with Gentiles. They were not to go there. They were not to go into Syria. They were not to go into Samaria to the south. They were to to stay within that boundary of the Galilean region, going from city to city, village to village, to the lost sheep of Israel. Not the lost tribes, but the lost sheep. There's a difference. There are no such thing as a lost tribe of Israel, or you may hear that phrase commonly spoken by the Reformers and other replacement theology groups that are wrong in their theology. But this is what Jesus is doing in this particular time of their experience with him. He's sending them out to the sheep, those lost sheep, those wandering sheep, those sheep without a shepherd. And he's bringing them back into the fold, as many as will come. Not all will. In fact, there will be many who will not. But he's making the offer to all of Israel Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. He sent them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7 says, And as you go, preach, proclaim, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven, again, takes on several meanings throughout the Word of God. It can apply, as it does in this case, 
to the time when Jesus came to the people of Israel for the sole purpose of identifying himself as their Messiah. And if they had not rejected him, he would have been gladly their king. But he knew all things before they did, and they would not receive him, but they would indeed reject him. And that was as God had planned. But the offer was being made. That's the kingdom of heaven at that time. And it was at hand. It was there, present. He was the one who fulfilled that statement. Now, the kingdom of heaven is also future. We will enjoy eternity with God in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just that time period to that group of people. It is expanded to all of us as well in every generation since the cross. But he tells them, go and preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he adds, heal the sick, verse 8, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Now in the early part of the verse, in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, he gave them the power for unclean spirits to be cleaned out of the bodies of those who were oppressed, to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. But here he adds, raise the dead. They were given power. Again, this is power that none of us have unless the Spirit of God gives it. We can never lay claim to any of these things that these men were given by the Lord Jesus to perform. It's only through Him, through His Spirit, that that can be done. But he says in verse 9, there are limitations. And this applies to them at this point moment in their experience as he's sending them forth in this particular mission. These things apply. He says, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. In other words, don't rely on things. Rely on God alone. God will provide Trust in Him in this, and He will do everything that is necessary. As He sends you out, He does the same thing. But it is specifically to these twelve that He's appointing them to do this particular task, and He is telling them, don't try to take advantage of what you have power to do. Don't go out and make a profit with all the miracles that will be done by you. Oh, that's a word for today. There are many in the world today who are taking credit for miraculous things and making money, large amounts of money. And they demonstrate their wealth. And they say that their wealth is what can be expected of anyone who believes by faith in what God is capable of doing. They have faith in faith. Wealth, prosperity, Teaching is dangerous. It doesn't line up with all of God's words, certainly not in this case. That's another tangent. I don't want to go down any further than that. But I want to continue with what Jesus is saying to his people that he is sending out, the apostles. Verse 11 says, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. 
And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. What Jesus is saying here is if they receive you with hospitality, they are worthy of your presence. They are worthy to fellowship with you because they have received you unto themselves. Jesus is saying there will be those who will be very, very friendly toward you because they want to hear what you are going to tell them. They want to hear what this gospel message is that you have. That's what he's telling his disciples. They are to go from place to place and they're to go into these towns, these villages, these cities and search for someone who will take them in with good fellowship, hospitality, inviting them to come into their homes. That's amazing. It was done in those days, but not everybody was willing to do so. And he tells them, so if you go into a household that is, in your opinion, worthy, but they show themselves to be not willing to receive or hear your words, then they really truly are not worthy and you should leave them immediately and find another place to stay. How long they stayed in these homes, we're not told. But what Jesus is here saying is, be selective, be careful, choose justly, and if they do not receive you, then don't worry about it, just go and find somebody else. And as you go, he says again, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. So if they're not willing to receive the message, they're rejecting the message, then they're not worthy to hear any further. And he says to his disciples, don't waste your time with them. They've made their choice. Shake the dust off your sandals and go someplace else. And that shaking off the dust from your sandals was a typical Jewish way of showing that person that you're departing from or the town that you're leaving that you want nothing more to do with that individual or that community. Depart from that house or city. Shake off the dust from your feet. They've rejected your word. And in doing so, they've rejected me, Jesus is saying. Verse 15 tells us the consequence of that. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the cities Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 12 or 13, I believe, introduces us to that section of Scripture that reveals the sin that was taking place in those communities. God brought judgment. God told Abraham, we're going to destroy those cities. Abraham interceded on behalf of the inhabitants of that city, of Sodom and Gomorrah also. He said, but Lord, you're a just God. What if there's 50 people there? I will not destroy it for 50 people, the Lord says. But Abraham continues and says, well, what about if there's only 40? Will you destroy it for 40? No, I will not destroy it if there are 40 there. He kept on bothering with God, brought it down to 10. Will you destroy it if there's only 10 there? No, I will not destroy it for 10. And Abraham apparently didn't dare go any lower, left it with that. And of course, his nephew Lot, his daughters, all that were left, they came out of the city his wife, although she turned and 
became a pillar of salt. So all that came out of that city that lived were Lot and two of his daughters. The rest were destroyed. What Jesus is saying here is that destruction that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah was needful because of the sins of the cities. They were corrupt. They were evil. And he judged them for it. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is those who now have the greater light than Sodom and Gomorrah did will be judged with a greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah had been judged. Let that sink into your mind. There's a degree of punishment that is being spoken of here. Now, there are some who would argue that there is no such thing as eternal damnation. There is no such thing as eternal hell. There is no such thing as torment forever and ever and ever. They don't get that from the Word of God. They get that from their own inward feelings about how could a loving God do such a terrible thing. Friends, Jesus spoke of hell more than He spoke of heaven. And every time He spoke of it, He spoke of it as something that is eternal, where their torment does not end. They will be in eternal damnation. Jesus said it. I'm not going to argue with Jesus and say, well, that can't be. But what he's saying is there is going to be a degree of punishment based on what you know, based on what you have heard. And the people of Israel had heard a great deal more than Sodom and Gomorrah had heard. And so therefore, their judgment will be greater, more severe than the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah will face at the judgment seat. There is a judgment seat that's coming. It's referred to as the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. And it's not a very, very happy time for those who are present. It'll be there that all of the Christ-rejecting world will bow their knee at Jesus' feet, where it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen in that day, even with those who rejected him. And then the judgment will come. That's a scary thought. And I hope you take that very, very seriously because you all, and I know many people who are not yet saved, who have not yet confessed Christ as their Lord and their Savior that need to before it's too late. Then he goes on to tell them the really, really good news. You're going to be given this power to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. All of these things will be done by you and and you'll be received in some homes and it'll be a wonderful experience for you. And when you come back to me, everything will be hunky-dory. That's not what he's going to be telling them. Listen to what he says to them next in verse 16. Behold, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You realize sheep don't typically have the capability of attacking wolves. It's the other way around. Wolves will attack sheep. What Jesus is saying is you're going out into a dangerous world. And I think for us to apply these words to our own ministries in this present age, 
is a very appropriate thing for us to do. What he's telling his disciples, maybe specifically for them during that day, as they go out two by two into the cities and towns and villages of the Jewish nation, that was what they could expect. But it also, I believe, is something that we as believers should expect as well, that there are wolves who seek to come into the church in sheep's clothing. We have told about that very often. But also, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, wherever we go, there are wolves who will not want to hear the truth. And they can be very, very antagonistic. One of the things that I was sort of thinking about today and yesterday, as we've heard the news with regard to the abortion issue, the leaked decisions of the Supreme Court. Everybody knows, I'm sure, what that's all about. You've read the news, I hope. If you haven't, then you should be aware then that there is trouble ahead. There are many who are wanting to take action against anyone who agrees with this decision that has not yet become a final decision by the Supreme Court, but it likely will. Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned. That doesn't mean that they're going to eliminate abortion, by the way. It just means that the federal government will not be mandating that as a constitutional right. If you look at our Constitution, there is no way that you can treat abortion as a constitutional right. They use that, but that is absolute falsehood. There is no way that they can put that together with the Constitution and say that it's a right given by the Constitution. It is not. It is a decision that they made many, many years ago, and it was a wrong decision. But they made it anyway. And many children have died as a result. Millions of babies have been aborted. Blood has been needlessly shed over the years. And they're out to get the churches that stand against any change. There are pictures that I've seen already where graffiti on the walls of a Catholic church in particular talking about the fact that in their eyes abortion is a, a right and they do not want anyone to be against that right. I'm pro-choice for the baby. They are not. They're pro-choice in name. It sounds good. But I would like the baby to have a choice in the matter. Of course, the baby can't speak for itself in the womb, so he or she needs voices outside the womb to speak on their behalf. That's you and me. So yes, pro-life is very, very much a reality in my heart, and I hope it is in all of yours. But what I'm saying is that they are angry, and there is likely to be some real trouble ahead if this continues in the path that it seems to be going Will it bring persecution to the church? Possible. As I mentioned, only so far as I know, Catholic churches have been sort of chosen as a, uh, a place where they can vent their anger. But it could have been here as well. There are many churches that were opening their doors today wondering whether or not they would be attacked, whether or not they would be 
uh, chosen to be an example of by this movement. We'll see how that develops. But that's just one example of what Jesus is talking about here. Wolves are out there in large number. And he's sending them, the twelve, into that arena. He tells them, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's the idea that he's presenting here. Wise as a serpent? Well, is a serpent really that wise? Well, if you think about it, do you think you could survive if you didn't have any arms or legs? They use a lot of wisdom to hide from enemies and be able to survive in those conditions. So yes, there's wisdom involved in all of that. But harmless as does, or innocent in some of your translations. I think that's a good way to approach it as well. Innocence, harmless. We're not to do any harm to anyone. We're not to seek revenge. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. If they slap you on the face, on the right cheek, turn your cheek and don't respond in a negative way. Love them who persecute you, who hate you, who seek to do you harm. Be harmless as does. And in that you will win great victories for the Lord. That's what they are told by Jesus in that day for that particular time. And it is also, I believe, important for us to apply it as well in our own lives. He goes on in verse 17. He says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Now, that obviously is referring to the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish opposition to those twelve. But he goes on to further say, and now in verse 18 and following, he's actually looking further into the future, and I believe into our present day as well, where he says in verse 18, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. That didn't happen necessarily during that time when they were sent out two by two for just those 12 individuals at that time, but it extends beyond that time into a period of time yet to be fulfilled. During their lives, yes, of course, they did come before magistrates. They did come before governors. Paul was brought before Nero. So that is indeed something that was fulfilled and may well still be fulfilled in our future times. He says in verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. I believe that that is something that the Spirit of God can and does do for the believer. If you have ever been in a place where you've defended your faith, have you ever felt the Spirit of the Lord come upon you in such a way as to give you words to say, That's a wonderful experience. I've seen that in my own life, and I encourage you, if you are ever in a situation where you're talking to a Mormon or talking to a Jehovah's Witness about the Lord, let the Spirit of God lead you in that discussion. Let the Spirit of God give you the words to say, and it will be a wonderful experience for you when you do so. I know it has been in my case many times. It's a great blessing to be convinced that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. You might think after the fact, I didn't know I knew that. Where did that come from? That was the Word of God, but I never tried to memorize that verse. It just came out of me. How did that happen? 
It's the Spirit of God that did so. That's what he's telling his disciples, and I believe it also is something that we too can apply in our own lives as well. Verse 20 says, It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. That's encouraging to me. Now, he says in verse 21, Brother will deliver up brother to death, father to his child. Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now he's saying there's going to be persecution. There are those who will hate what you have to say. But be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. So anything that they can do to you, it's limited. They can take your bodies and they can persecute you. They can martyr you. They can take your life. But they can't touch your soul. And none of us, I don't believe, want to go through any degree of torture or persecution that results in pain. But the reality of it is we may very well be forced into such a situation. How will we react Well, the only way that I know of that we can react is by relying on the Holy Spirit in such a case to give us the grace to endure to the end. That's what Jesus is saying. He does so. He does want to make sure that we all know you're not in this on your own. It's not by your strength. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can stand against such an onslaught of the enemy. Jesus is warning them it's going to come. But he's also giving them the comfort that they can endure. Verse 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he is like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? The word Beelzebub is a reference to a Palestinian god that they worshipped in the Old Testament days. Loosely translated, it means Lord of the Flies. In some of your translations, instead of Beelzebub, it's translated Beelzebul, which is a deviation from that word. It's a Jewish slam on the original word. But they call Jesus Beelzebub. Or they said he did things, miraculous things, by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus is saying here, what they did with regard to me, they will do with regard to you. Because they hate me, they will hate you. Now, if you were one of the twelve, having listened to what Jesus has been saying to them, as recorded here in Matthew's Gospel, would you want to go? Would you be willing to? Would you say, uh, Lord, I'm not really sure I'm ready for this? I mentioned that in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, they also recorded the choosing of the twelve. You can read those accounts, and you'll find that there's a little bit more information given in both of them than there is given in Mark with regard to those twelve. First of all, in Luke's Gospel... It tells us that the night before Jesus chose those twelve, he spent all night in prayer. 
He prayed all night before he chose those particular 12 men. That tells me something about the selection process that Jesus chose. He had many disciples, but he didn't just pick 12 out of the hat. He prayerfully sought the will of the Father. And those were selected, and those were the ones that were sent. And how could they, after seeing that, argue the point, I can't go. Remember Moses in Midia for 40 years, having been a prince in Egypt, now an exile in a desert place. And God comes and visits with him in a bush that was a miraculous event. God speaks to him. God says, I want to send you, Moses. And Moses said, send somebody else. I, I, I don't really have uh, the ability to speak. I, I don't think you got the right person. God said, have I not made you? That's a good question, isn't it? I made men and women with infirmities. I did it. The Lord tells Moses that. But it's you who I've chosen. And you will go. Jeremiah was reluctant to go. He was young. He said, I'm just a youth, Lord. I don't think you've got the right guy. But God answered Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I chose you. Think about that. The abortionists say that you're not viable while you're in the womb. And matter of fact, some are saying you're not viable even after coming out of the womb. But God says, before you were formed, I knew you. There's an acquaintance that God has with every soul, even before conception. Think about that. The next time an abortionist comes to you and says, you're wrong. Go to the Word of God. Go to see where God speaks so plainly. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. In verse 24, Jesus continues, A disciple is not above his master. A servant, rather, above his master. A disciple above his teacher. Those are truths that we need to adhere to. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, Jesus is saying. And don't think that you will escape the persecution that they would have given to him if they could have. But Let me read verse 24 following. It says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house bills above, how much more will they call those of his household? And then in verse 26, I will end with this. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will be not known. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, don't worry. Yes, persecution may very well come to us, but don't worry. Do not fear them. The one that you should fear is God who made you. Fear Him. They can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. He, on the other hand, if Christ is rejected, will indeed judge both body and soul in hell. Jesus' warning is pertinent, relevant to us in this day, in this passage. Take heed. There's a reason to fear God. There's no reason to fear men. And men may do some very evil things. And it may be very difficult times ahead. But know this, my friends. You and I, who are filled with the Spirit of God, have the assurance that greater is He who is in us than he that is in the world. Satan can do nothing when the Spirit of God is present. That's a great truth. That's a great, wonderful truth that you and I can hold on to in these last hours. As difficult as it may get, and I believe there are times coming that will be far more difficult than what we've experienced. Yes, we've seen wars and rumors of wars. That's expected. Yes, we've seen natural catastrophes, whether they're earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis or volcanoes. That's to be expected. Yes, we've seen pestilences. Yes, we've seen some famine in parts of the world. Yes, we've seen various trials and tribulations that have come upon many people in many places. But it's nothing like what's going to happen when the Spirit of God takes this church out of the world. Right now, the church is a restraining force for evil. It doesn't seem like maybe that's working out very well. In many cases, it's not. Because the church isn't doing what the church should be doing. And that's one of the reasons why I, I hope that you are also, pray for revival in the church. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God. We need to be servants willing to take the risk of being rejected. We need to be people who are willing to endure to the end, those things that the world might pass on our way for the sake of the gospel. We need to be filled with His Spirit, empowered by His Spirit, to do great and wonderful things according to His Word in these last days. It requires nothing more from us but commitment. And prayerfully, let us go to the Lord and seek that which He desires to give each and every one of us. That power that He gave His disciples isn't just limited to those twelve, if we would but believe. I'm convinced He's willing to give us power as well in these last days to do great and mighty things for His glory. We'll look next time at some more of this issue with regard to the fear of God the fear of men and what we are to do when we are faced with such challenges. But till then, the Lord desires to bless. The Lord desires to give. The Lord desires to protect, to provide, to bless His people.
Would you pray with me?